Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. We've got a brand new story for you, and I'm excited about this one. It's an interesting crime. Uh, yeah, it's another one you wouldn't let me know anything about. I think you like to keep me in the dark sometimes. Well, that's where you belong. That's what. That's when I'm at my best. That's when you're in the dark and you're quiet. Yeah. Well, then I have, yeah, that's when I say dumb stuff, because I don't know anything else to say. <laughs> say some dumb stuff sometimes. Okay, but yeah, so uh, here we are, we're um, slaving away here, laying a couple few things down. Yeah. I'm excited. So our last show was about the Kentucky Vampire Cult, which obviously they were not a true vampire cult. I mean, it was just sort of a salacious title, but I thought it was eye-catching and we should use that for the show. And uh, got a lot of interest in that, though. M many downloads. People seemed pretty stoked to hear that story. Oh, yeah. A lot. And it was uh, the whole Satanic Panic era. Yeah. And speaking era. of Satanic Panic, tell them about our Patreon-exclusive content. Yes. Uh, um, we had an incredible discussion um, about our passion and interest in the Satanic Panic decades there. And... Uh, we kind of came to a revelation, really, during the discussion about how much stuff, all these different big, huge cases and things were going on all around the world. Yeah, so we delve into that a little bit. And if you're wondering, what is Patreon? Because some people don't know. They're not familiar with it. Patreon's basically um, a site where people who produce content, like, for example, Mountain Murders, we can get you guys to sign up for a couple of bucks a month. We have different levels. It's billed once monthly. So for three bucks a month, you can support the podcast. But in exchange for that, you get all kinds of extra bonus content. You help support this true crime podcast and, of course, our extreme rock and roll lifestyle. And you can yeah. keep Dylan in new hair ties because, you know, he's been rocking that man bun lately. That's, um, that's salacious. And that's you completely... You my word, okay? It's completely false. Get yourself a new SAT vocabulary word, sir. That is defamation upon my character, and I, really, there's a lot of third parties listening right now, so you're basically proving my case. Well, you admitted on the last episode that you were wearing a man bun. So. Yeah, I had my hair up out of my face. I just got a little bit, you know, people are probably picturing me with like Fabio hair, maybe. You wish you had a luscious mane like oh, that. Oh, I do. I would wear it down. You do have some cute curls, though. The longer it's getting, the more yeah. these little curls are popping up. Yeah, so... It's kind of adorable. So, yeah, um, but yeah, we had a great talk. and He's um, blushing, y'all. For those extra um, couple few bucks, we certainly feel like we'd um, try to provide yeah, you with a lot more content. We produce more podcast content there, so you can go, um, if you donate to Patreon, you're going to get extra episodes, you're going to get videos, photos, links to articles. Yeah, I mean, we try to keep a lot of little extras on there. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, we're going to start pushing into, I'm going to start maybe doing a little more news clips and stuff related directly to cases and little mini-sodes and we talk about full-blown episodes, which we basically just did one and we love it. 
yeah, so it's great. Go sign up for Patreon. Okay, so enough of this shameless self-promotion and trying to separate you from your money. Yeah, let's get we back to... We're like to... a bunch of strippers over here. Yeah, even if uh, yeah, even if you don't make it to Patreon, just keep listening, guys. I'm going to walk you, you over to the ATM and get you to give me 20 bucks, Daddy. Okay, oh. so what do I What case... do I swap my card? <laughs> i got a place for you to swap your card. Okay. The ATM when you hand me wads of cash. Okay, so let's get started. Yeah, I want to get back to this so because I don't... our most recent case, the vampire cult, that was from the 1990s. So it was not super recent, but still within the last, you know, couple of decades. Right. But this story, we're going back, way back. We're getting in that way back machine. Okay. And this is a pretty fascinating case. With a lot of these old stories, it's hard to find great detail. I mean, today the news media delivers so much as far as, you know, details of the case, the trial. Oh, yeah. All this stuff. But back in the day, I mean, they were just not as great at record keeping, I guess. And mainstream media didn't exist. So you have to rely heavily on a lot of the local stories. Yeah, the newspaper. And history and folklore. Yeah. So this case goes way back. And um, I tried my best to get as much information as possible. But we're going back to the 1800s. Uh-oh. And that was actually a pretty murderous time in America. Well, yeah, that's before a lot of, you know, law enforcement and, you know, rules of our society were really forged out. Well, we didn't have the mass media that we have today, but, you know, newspapers were still pretty prominent. And these stories provided sensational headlines and was a form of entertainment for people. You had cases like Lizzie Borden. You had Belle Gunness. H.H. Oh. Holmes. Wow. And then you think about Jack the Ripper overseas, captivating audiences, but also, you know, making headlines here in the U.S. because it was just such a horrific series of murders. Oh, we talked about um, the media fanning the flames of hysteria nowadays in various cases, but the newspaper, the media was no different then. Well, in the 1800s, you have to imagine these were people who didn't have radio, you didn't have television. The newspaper was your sole source a of information. Daily news. And most of these people lived in rural settings. I mean, there were some cities and some urban areas, but, you know, a lot of people were living like way out in the country. They just didn't have the day-to-day -day interaction. So the newspaper was like the best entertainment that money could buy. Right. And what <laughs> was the, the time. first thing people saw was the headline on the outside cover. Well, I guess we've all had a morbid fascination with true crime through the ages. It's true. It's no different than you and I or our wonderful listeners out there checking out a true crime podcast. No, except they would hear it in story oral history or tradition, you know, or telling the story as it went through a community, the story being modified, you know, like the game of telephone in school. So right. could you imagine these stories of murder and, you know, horrible crimes by the time it went through a community or two, how it would be changed and always getting worse and people wrapping their own fears into it and things like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this was a big deal. Well, let's get into the story. Pearl Bryan, she was the daughter of a fairly well-to-do farmer in Greencastle, Indiana. In 1893, a young man named Scott Jackson was visiting his mother and made the acquaintance of Miss Bryan. And Pearl, by all accounts, was described as a Sunday school teacher. She was a church worker. She was just a very attractive young woman, pretty face, bright blue eyes, blonde hair, and had a pretty country girl's complexion. So at this time, she was 23 years old when she met Jackson. 
Scott Jackson was the son of a transatlantic sea captain. What a cool job. The old sea captain. Arr. 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 Oh, wait. I wonder if he had like a little pipe and a beard. Why'd I make him a pirate? I don't know. I, we saw a pirate today. I did. See, I saw him. I did saw the pirate the at the campground. Just, yeah. yeah the, the pirate guy was pretty awesome. I was like, what the hell is this dude? I went to pick up my son. He had been camping with my mother. And so if you listen to the Chewing the Fat episode with my mom, then you know a little bit about my mom. So she took the kids camping this weekend. And so today I had to go pick my son up from the campground, which is actually not too far from us. But they'd spent a couple of days over there. Had a grand old time. And I guess they had some sort of pirate theme week at the campground and so there was a guy driving around in a golf cart wearing a pirate outfit yeah and so when he walked by i was like yar and he just kind of looked at me like i was a fucking idiot uh-uh. and then i asked him if he had a barrel of rum and again he stared at me blankly and was just like ha ha yeah and kept walking and i was like god damn it i thought i made a great joke anyway so back to this guy was a sea captain and he had traveled pretty extensively in his childhood with his dad being a sea captain they made a lot of journeys kind of been everywhere. Yeah. So he led kind of a charm life. I mean, that's pretty exciting. Adventures. Have run to the boat if your dad's a captain. Well, when his father died, he moved to Jersey City, New Jersey with his mom, and he took a job with a railroad company. It was during this time that his boss was charged with embezzlement, and though Jackson was never named in the criminal conspiracy, he was still fired. And at that time, his mother had moved to Greencastle, Indiana, So Jackson had gone to visit her, and he also started attending dental school in Indiana as well. Well, Pearl's second cousin, his name was Will Woods, he somehow befriended Jackson on the visit and decided to introduce Scott Jackson to his cousin Pearl. They became friends, and when Jackson would come into town and visit his mom, they would kind of hang out, meet up. I guess they were kind of like pen pals, write letters back and forth, anticipating that next visit into town. Oh, yeah. So by the summer of 1895, the pair had known each other for two years, but everything had changed in their relationship. It was no longer the just friends. It had bloomed into something more. And it was during this time that Pearl discovered she was pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. So 1895, single gal, knocked up, you know, from a good family, church-going girl. Well, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's not just my parents are going to be mad. That is being ostracized from the entire community, defaming your entire family's name. Likely. Like, yeah, I mean, like, money could be lost over this, you know? I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, this could definitely tarnish her reputation, hurt her family. Right. They're well-to-do people in town. You know, just not a good situation for Pearl to be in. She was obviously upset, and she confided into her cousin Will. I guess she and Will were like best friends. Okay. So she and her cousin were really close. Will took it upon himself to write a letter to Jackson. He was living in Cincinnati at the time. And Jackson responded with a note saying, Well, tell the girl to come to Cincinnati. Pearl, thinking that Jackson was the man she would marry, packed up all of her things and took a train to Cincinnati. This was January 28, 1896. Two days upon her arrival in Ohio to meet Jackson, there was a man named John Hewing who was cutting across a field in Fort Thomas. As he walked by, he noticed a woman lying on the ground and he wasn't sure if she was drunk or dead because this property was often used by soldiers and ladies from town for drunken parties and romantic trysts. 
Oh. This is like the makeout spot, I guess. Yeah, bringing the submarine in the port. Hewing decided not to disrupt this woman. You know, he was like, well, if she's drunk, I don't want to get involved. You know, she could be combative. If she's dead, he she's just, not going anywhere. He just didn't want to deal with her. Right. So he went back to his employer, told the employer about the woman. So the employer was like, yeah, I don't want to get in the mix of this either. Called a deputy and the deputy was sent out to the property to run this drunken woman off. Well, what he discovered was the signs of a struggle, a pool of blood. And when they rolled this woman over, she was lying on her stomach. They rolled her over and her dress was kind of pulled up, like almost over her face. They pulled her dress down. He saw that she had been decapitated and there was no sign of the head. Whoa. Okay. So now they're shitting bricks. Yeah. Well, this is crazy. I mean, imagine you're this guy, John Hewing. You're just out trying to cut a field, doing honest day's labor. And you see this woman, you think she's probably drunk. Because you've already been through some shit to think that the first thing. Well, yeah. You've I seen mean, stuff. Pro- yeah. Belligerent, drunk people. He's been some places, seen some things. He wouldn't recommend it. So he calls, you know, his, his employer over. They call the deputy. And then wham, bam, here you go. There's a pool of blood. No head. Yeah. What a scene. Body, no head. Yeah. Woman I mean, in a dress. And, you know, and let's admit today we're pretty desensitized to these things. I'm not saying that everybody likes gore, but for the most part, we've probably all seen some weird, gross, graphic images via the internet or even in horror movies. By accident, yeah. So we see that kind of thing and it's not so shocking. But can you imagine in the 1800s without TV, without any of this kind of media and these images in your face finding it's this real? really no. graphic scene blood headless lady that's got to be crazy i say that probably because of the lack of like you were saying other images and haven't seen this stuff at all basically likely unless they saw it in real life traumatize those people oh it was a scene for sure bloodhounds were brought in to search for this missing head Dogs trailed a scent to a reservoir in Fort Thomas that was fairly close by. Well, they drained the reservoir, but no head was found. And the body was taken to Newport, where an autopsy was performed. It was revealed that the woman was pregnant, and they found out she had cocaine in her bloodstream. Investigators were able to identify the body by a serial number on the woman's shoe. This is pretty interesting. you got to think, 1896... They don't have DNA. They don't have some database. They can't send over a fax. They can't call up the local police department. Can't do any of and that. Try to find, yeah. So you, this is some serious investigative work here. No scientific, you know, forensics or any of that, or even investigative tech, you know, techniques. Yeah. Nothing. So think of how, like, wow, that's kind of crazy to identify this body because of her shoe. Yeah. So you had a cop on the beat. Who had some sense. And they found the serial number on the shoe. They were able to contact the company where the shoe was made. Find out which town the shoe was, you know, where the shoe went. Right. Were able to trace it back to the specific shoe store in Indiana where Miss Bryan had purchased the shoes. Wow, I didn't even know they went that route. That is crazy. Yeah, so quite a story there. It's just so interesting to me. Well, once the family was contacted... Jackson was arrested after they learned of the correspondence between Jackson and the cousin, Will Woods. So immediately, the family finds out what's happened. They're freaking out. 
Will Woods finds out. He says, well, hey, wait a minute. I've been talking to Scott Jackson. Here's the story. She went to find him. Be with him. Yeah. The story all starts to begin, um, you know, unfolding here. Jackson had met a guy named Alonzo Walling, and they had met while attending dental school in Indiana, but they later bumped into each other in Cincinnati and rekindled their friendship. Originally, Jackson had gone to his friend Walling and asked if he would perform an abortion for him. Ah. They're kind of discussing this, and then Jackson has this idea that he could drug this woman and make it look like a suicide, right? Oh my God. Yeah, so just up to no good. So you won't abort illegally, abort, I'm sure, I guess, in some weird form, the baby, but you think we should just kill her. You'll kill well, my woman. you know, I'm not really sure the details of this. I mean, maybe Walling was like, hey, I don't know how to perform an abortion. Right. I don't know where to begin with this. He may have said, well, can you help me? Well, he may me? have just been like, hell no, I'm not going to do this. But, you know, at some point Jackson was like, well, you know, the easiest solution is just to try to make it look like she killed herself. Okay, that's messed up. So that's what they're going with. Pearl's brother, Fred, had came to collect the body. So Saturday, February the 8th, Fred's in town. He wants answers. Jackson and Walling were taken to the funeral home by the police to view the body. They thought that if he, if, if Jackson saw the body and had to confront what it looked like and met with Fred, that he would feel some, I guess, intense remorse, guilt, And this would cause him to confess. Right. Because really, Fred just wanted to know where the head was. The family's very upset about this. They really just want to know, hey, can we get our daughter's head back? Her body intact so we can put it to rest. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, both men were stoic and showed no emotion. They had no reaction to this woman's dead body. No reaction to this headless corpse. And that's her baby daddy and his friend. Yeah. Okay. Well, this attitude of just being stoic, no emotion, no remorse, they maintained throughout this investigation, this trial, because five days later, both men were indicted for murder. Jackson's trial only lasted about three weeks. Um, Medical experts testified that Pearl was alive during most of the decapitation. Now, I'd be interested in seeing how they came up to that conclusion. You know, medical science was in its infancy, and they were trying all kinds of things, some of it horrible. We could actually talk about that someday. But yeah, so they think she was alive during most of the decapitation. They do. And I don't know if that's because you could tell there was a struggle. And the blood's all over. I mean, it's really violent. And from what I understand, decapitation is not easy. No. I mean, not that I've ever tried to decapitate No, it's just a lot going on in your neck. Yeah. A lot of tendons and spine, and it's not just like soft skin through. I mean, it's one part of your body that is a lot going on in there. Yeah. It's hard to get through. Well, and so if she was alive, I mean, I imagine there was a great struggle. This is just, ugh, gruesome. So that's horrible. Jackson maintained that Pearl was already dead before the decapitation. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to hang, and Walling faced a very similar fate. Jackson and Walling had extra protection from the police because while they were in custody, during the trial, once they were convicted, then they immediately were trying to appeal the sentence. So they're being held. There was an angry mob in town that had threatened to lynch the pair because of this horrific crime. Like, word traveled really fast, and people were very upset about it. Right. You have a young, pregnant woman. Yes. 
who's not only been killed, which but is brutally bad. Brutally murdered. Brutally killed. And they're hearing the story of her being alive while her head's chopped off. So they've crossed a line with this little chunk of society right here. Right. To where and they're ready. this little ready town to... in Kentucky here, I mean, they just had never seen anything like this before. Right. Because Fort Thomas was in Kentucky. The body was found in Kentucky. They had come over from Ohio to do this crime. Ah, so they're not even from Kentucky. No. Okay. They were living in Cincinnati. So oh. they crossed state lines to come over, make this murder happen, get rid of her body. So you got to imagine this little town in Kentucky. I mean, they probably never had something this horrible happen in the town. And it's so bad they want to give him justice themselves. Right. And kill him and get rid of him. They were just being held in protective custody, but eventually they exhausted their appeals. Just before the execution in 1897, Jackson told authorities that Walling was innocent and had nothing to do with the crime. Last minute save for his friend, right? Like yeah. The Hail Mary pass. Well, the governor was told about this confession, so the hanging was delayed for a few minutes while Jackson was questioned. You know, they're, they're stopping the execution, trying to get answers from him. But ultimately, the governor did not recant the execution or offer a stay. So he tried to get his friend out or a lesser? He tried to give him the old razzle-dazzle. Yeah. It didn't quite work. It's the old number 13 where they <laughs> ride into town and rape the horses and beat the women. Oh, Wait, now that's like a line out okay. Three Amigos. Well, this Sorry. sounds like one of your weird fantasies, and we're not going to get into that right no, now. No, it's Three that's Amigos, but I messed up the joke. Episode. Well, you, honey, are no Steve Martin, but I love you just the same. That's okay. Well, on what was described as a perfect spring day, the execution happened at 11.40 a.m., and while stepping to the gallows, having the rope placed over his head, Jackson was asked about his final words. Walling had probably hoped that his friend was going to exonerate him and say, oh, my friend here did nothing. And, you know, he's, Please he's probably him. hoping against hope this is what's going to happen. But instead, Jackson said, I have only this to say. I am not guilty of the crime for which I am now compelled to pay the penalty of my life. Oh. Till the end, this guy is pretending like he didn't have a fucking thing to do with it. And it never produced the head. Never produced the head. Well, the trapdoors opened. Both men were hanged. Yeah, that's how they didn't play around back then. No, and you know, public hanging was a big deal. And from what I understand, this hanging was especially a big deal. Because you had this angry mob in town. People were ready for justice. The streets were lined. Everybody came. Brought their picnic. From all around. granny. This was a big deal. Pearl was laid to rest in Greencastle, Indiana. When visiting the grave, even now, many visitors often place pennies on her grave in hopes that maybe that will somehow help her get her head back. Okay. Kind of a weird superstition, but okay. Well, yeah, I've heard of that one. You haven't heard of that one? No. Okay. But the bag of personal belongings that Pearl had brought with her from Indiana to Cincinnati is now in Alexandria, Kentucky at the Campbell County Historical Society Museum. Wow. If you're a person who enjoys the morbid macabre, you can go to the Society, Historical Society Museum. Check out this dead lady's shit. Well, they thought enough of her to keep her belongings together. Here's her overnight bag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in a weird twist to the story, have you ever heard of Bobby Mackey's Music World? No. It's a pretty famous venue in Wilder, Kentucky, and it has become the center of an urban legend. Are you okay over there? My foot itches. 
Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm not putting it in your face. <laughs> you better not. <laughs> well, a lot of paranormal investigators have descended upon this venue in search of ghosts because there's been a claim that this spot is haunted by Pearl Bryan. Oh. And now here's the story. Allegedly, in the 1800s, this site was a spot for satanic rituals, which ah. goes hand in hand with our bonus episode I on knew the satanic it. panic and also with the Kentucky Vampire Cult. It does. Right? In the 1800s, apparently people were just hanging out here, worshiping the devil. The urban legend is that Waller and Jackson were members of the satanic cult and that they sacrificed Pearl. That they cut her head off and threw it down a well in the basement of this abandoned property, which, by the way, had been a slaughterhouse before. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is the property where Bobby Mackey's Music World stands. Okay. So, there have been, like, many paranormal investigators that have gone out to this Bobby Mackey's Music World to investigate activity. It's been on all of those ghost hunters and ghost adventures. and. Oh, yeah. We should watch some of that. You know, all of those TV shows. Right. I remember watching one of those shows... Before I even knew the story about how Bobby Mackey's supposedly this well in the basement was like a portal to hell. That yeah. That kind of thing. You know, what's funny is those shows, I get evidence on every show almost. They do. But from what I've gathered, yeah. none of this is true. Oh. Like through research, they've been able to debunk that there was actually, of course, no satanic rituals there. This well in this basement of this, you know, slaughterhouse. I mean, it's just like this big story that, you know, doesn't even make sense. And so you're saying no record of it. This account of satanic ritualistic killing turns out to have been a fraud. Yeah. No. Well, back to what you were saying in the beginning, how this is almost like a game of telephone, right. where. A story gets passed from person to person and everybody kind of adds their own details until you end up with something that is just unrecognizable. Right. Well, that's what's happened with this Pearl Bryan case. There you so go. So here this poor woman is viciously murdered, decapitated, and of course the juicy detail is her head is missing. Over the years, it has evolved into this story about this head being thrown in this well and this guy, Bobby Mackey, or whoever owns this music world, seems to think they have paranormal activity happening there. Well, sure he does, because people come by and buy beer and talk about ghosts. And it's so easy to tie in this whole story, even though it's just, you know, it's a legend. It's an urban legend. Yeah, it's funny. People always, somebody's always profiting off a lie. Yeah, it's true. Well, Pearl's head was never found. And since you're saying that, what did P.T. Barnum said? There's like a sucker born every minute. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was kind of the master at that, so apparently he was onto something. A pearl's head never found. Sad case. That is sad. Yeah. And it's and for him, her baby daddy, and uh, famously, Mari did get a telegram to him. Oh yeah. That said, you are the father. Well, yeah. And that's but, when he well, started. That's to... clearly what led him on this. Yeah, but no. Anyway, downward um, spiral of death. I've been trying to work Mari in this entire time in my brain. So, yeah, that did not work. I'm glad I did that. Should we share with our listeners our, our idea for a Mori-style true crime reality show? Yes. Let's let's tell them right now. Well, well, do you want me to tell them or do you want to tell them? I can bring it in. So, if you've watched Mari, you are the father. You got the lie detector test. You got the baby mama right there. Just certain that he's the father. 
even though it's the seventh guy that they've tested. Yeah, I, you know, the, I don't believe a lot of that. But anyway, so we got Amari show, and it will be like uh, he will get the proof of like these uh, forensic DNA tests and things, and it will be like you, uh, the DNA test and the lie detector says you are not the killer. And oh, okay, then, so yeah. the premise of this show. Let me just recap this for our folks. Yeah, I bet they're like, they're fucking stupid. Well, so the whole idea is that you would bring in like a panel of uh, potential murder suspects. Right. And you've got the murder case and you've got like mom in the audience like, I know he killed my baby or whatever. I'm a thousand percent sure he stabbed my daughter in the back. Right. That kind of thing. Okay. And then Maury like pulls out the card and is like, no, you're not the killer. And then the guy like. Crip walks. He crip walks and he maybe does like a Judy chop. He, and the Judy Chops. Springer Judy Chops. And the mama or the whoever relative falls out because she was so certain that he was the killer. She falls. She goes running and they always fall. And then she falls backstage and she's like, but then she's back two weeks later with someone else who she think is, is the killer. Maybe they can finally find the killer. We have a really fucked up sense of humor. It's a lot funnier when I guess we first came up with the idea. These people are probably like scratching their heads like, what the hell? Yeah. Or maybe that's just something that's just funny to us. Yeah, I don't know. But Not it's a... I find it entertaining. So yeah, we're gonna we're that's in development in LA right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till we start getting our royalty checks. Yes. Well again, thank you for tuning in to this uh extra super special. What are you gonna call this? Murders. I don't the know. Pearl <laughs> The what Pearl Necklace. What was it? No. no. Uh, well, I'm a ZZ Top fan. I mean, Do who, not give her a pearl necklace. Who says she wants a pearl necklace? Maybe she just wants a nice toaster. What was Pearl's last name? Brian. Okay. The story of the murder of Pearl Brian. Thank you for joining joining us. And uh, we're just going to keep rocking it some. We're putting in work. <laughs> well, again, thanks for tuning in to Mount Murders. And we'll be back with more true crime stories for you here very soon. <laughs>